Lord, thank you so much that there's nothing but your blood that makes us clean. Lord, there's no good works, there's no righteousness that we could possibly bring before you, but just simply a broken spirit, um, a poor spirit, uh, that we mourn, and because of that we'd be comforted because you have forgiven us, and we don't deserve it. Um, But while we were still sinners, you died for us. Uh, There's nothing but your blood that can cleanse us. And uh, we love you. We pray for this uh, sermon, this message, that whatever is of human, whatever is of me, that nobody writes down, nobody remembers, but what is from you will be etched on to our hearts for eternity. So Lord, I pray that you would meet us in this time, in this space. Uh, Would your Holy Spirit, would you come and we dwell amongst us? Uh, We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And y'all may be uh, seated. Well, hey, guys, you can grab your Bibles. We're going to be in Matthew 5. And if uh, we haven't got a chance uh, to meet, my name is Alex Holroyd. I'm an elder here at Cross, and I have also the privilege to serve in a ministry called Young Life. And every once in a while, uh, Taylor lets me come up here and talk about Jesus. And so I'm grateful for that. Um, He is today preaching out at City Life Church in Charleston. Um, And so you can kind of be praying for him as he is up there. Uh, We are in week three. Hey, let me start a timer because we want that. Uh, We are in week three of a six-month series on the Sermon on the Mount. And you might be going, "Woo, six months. Um, You know, I had a good friend challenge me like this one time. He says, you know, sometimes it's okay. We read scripture and we read the breadth of it. We, We kind of read over it real quick. But he says, you know what? You rake for leaves but you dig for diamonds. And so if you want to dive into something, you got to dig for it. And we're going to do that here in the Sermon on the Mount. So you guys, we're going to dive into it as we're going kind of verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and you might be asking yourself a question, why are we doing this now? Why did we choose the Sermon on the Mount? Um, and I want to give you a couple reasons. A couple reasons why I think the Sermon on the Mount is something that's so good for us to be studying. Um, and here's the first one. Uh, it reminds us that we desperately need a savior. And here's what I mean. If you're coming to the Sermon on the Mount and go, okay, here is a, here's the example that I am to follow of Jesus, you are going to be crushed. Like, just read it. And you're like, okay, um, all right, I, you've heard it said uh, not to commit adultery. And you're like, okay, I haven't done that. He says, but if you look at a woman lustfully, you've committed this in your heart. And you're like, uh-oh. And then you say, hey, don't, don't murder. And you're like, okay, I haven't done that. But if you get angry at your brother, you've committed murder. And you're like, uh-oh. And then you go and says, hey, you've heard it's heard, you know, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. You're like, okay, great. I know this one. He says, no, if someone hits you, you should like turn to him the other cheek. And you're like, yeah, I'm out. Like, I don't understand this whole thing. Like, if you, if you think this is your example to follow, it's going to crush you. You don't need just Jesus as a role model. You need him as a savior. And when you look through the Sermon on the Mount, you go, I cannot possibly do this apart from the grace of the Lord. And that's exactly true. Uh, The other thing I'd say is really important to study the Sermon on the Mount is that, hear me out, Jesus is actually for your joy. He's actually for your happiness. I mean, the Beatitudes are saying the blessedness. It is saying the joyful. It is saying the happy. Now, we talked about, Taylor mentioned the first couple weeks, it's not this like um, uh, happiness that is fleeting, that kind of comes and goes in a matter of moments. Like if you won the lottery, which, you know, don't do the lottery, um, but if you won the lottery and you're happy and then the next day you lost the lottery ticket, you were really sad. 
Like that's the type of joy that can kind of come in an instant and leave right away. And that's not what Jesus is after. Uh, Jesus is not a killjoy, is the way I thought he was in high school. Uh, that he was just some moral person in the sky telling me uh, not to have fun. That's not what he's going after. He goes, no, I'm after something a lot deeper. Um, the fact that we search for happiness, we search for joy in so many different things in this world. We go, oh, if I just dated or I just married the right person, then life is going to feel great. Or uh, if I just got into this school, if you're in high school, if I got into the right college, things would be great. Or if I just got the right job that gave me the most satisfaction, then finally I would feel like this happiness. And the reality is none of those things are going to happen. We can't look to our kids for fulfillment. Every parent understands that one, right? But we feel the tension like you're at, you know, Walmart and your kid's acting up and you're like, this is reflecting on me. This is reflecting on me. <laughs> and you're like, hey, like we try to use our kids sometimes to fulfill this deep satisfaction desire that we want. And the reality is it's good to be proud of our kids. It's good to have a job that we love. But if we look to that thing to find happiness, it's going to destroy us. The third reason I think it's important to uh, study the Sermon on the Mount is this. It's the best evangelistic tool that we have is to live out the Sermon on the Mount. The best evangelism is just being a Christian who's living a Christian life. If you do that, here's a quote for you. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I love this, in, in the commentary on um, Sermon on the Mount, he says this. The world today is looking for and desperately needs true Christians. I'm never tired of saying what the church needs to do is not organize an evangelistic campaign or attract outside people, but to begin um, herself to live the Christian life. If she did that, men and women, women would be crowding into our buildings. That if you begin to live as somebody who, doesn't, uh, who loves their enemies... As someone who is not judging, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you live these out, I'm telling you, an outside hurting world goes, that's different. I'm intrigued. Um, there was this woman in the 80s, her name was Leslie, uh, and she, was, um, she struggled with gender dysphoria. Uh, it's a rough time to struggle with that in the 80s, and, and she also struggled um, with same-sex attraction. And she finally got the courage to talk to her pastor when she was in high school. And she went up to him and, and said, hey, I, I need to share with you some things that are going on in my life. I, I don't know what to do. Um, and as she got the courage to say that, his response was, um, please don't come back here. Um, and she didn't uh, for 25 more years. She never stepped foot inside a church again. She tried in her college years to kind of get back to her faith, but she didn't. And, and then eventually uh, she got married uh, to this woman and uh, after the first couple of years of marriage, uh, she found out uh, that her, her wife struggled with this like, neurological disease that kind of gave her um, seizures, kind of violent seizures. And um, unfortunately, one of those seizures happened, and um, she had this awful fall, and her, her wife passed away. Um, her wife just so happened to be at this time working, uh, kind of just kind of serving at this like, pantry at this church. Uh, the church was probably something similar to ours. Uh, believed in traditional marriage, believed in energy of scripture. Like it, it was more conservative in its, in its theology. And she knew her wife was going there. She didn't go there. Um, but now she had this dilemma uh, that she needed somebody to help do um, her wife's funeral. And uh, being torn up inside, she finally got the courage to ask this pastor, who she knew 
where he would stand, vice versa. Uh, and she got the courage to, to go up there and, and, and called. And um, she said, I, I asked him, would you be willing um, to do my wife's funeral? And his response was, it would be an honor. In fact, let us take care of all the expenses. Let us love you in this time. It was the act of this pastor, this church going, we want to live the Sermon on the Mount that brought her back into the doors. In the next two years, they begin to walk in this relationship, this discipleship relationship, where she would go on to realize, I want my identity to be solely in Christ and nothing else. Grace and truth, we always love to say that. That is true, grace and truth. Sometimes we skip over the grace and we go, truth. Um, Grace, the order there is kind of important. Um, Jesus didn't go to Zacchaeus and go, hey, Zacchaeus, you're kind of a punk. (laughs) Stop stealing from people, you know, like, I need you to be a better person. Um, He said, Zacchaeus, come down from that tree. I want to go to your house. It was that act of grace that then Zacchaeus said, "Um, I'll give everything away because I found something way better. Um, so it's the best tool that we have is to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, here's some things that we've got to kind of keep in mind, too, as we're reading through this in the next six months, uh, is that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is describing the Christian life. He's saying this is the way of which someone who is following Jesus, this is the way our life should look like. He's not saying this is the way everybody should operate. That is a key description. I, sometimes I get the privilege of working with youth ministry, and, and sometimes there's, and I get this having parents, they're going, hey, fix my kid, you know, they're acting up, like make them morally a better person. And you're like, you know, apart from Jesus, what do you think I'm going to do? Like stop vaping? Like that's not going to help the situation here. Um, in fact, this is again, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is his, uh, what he says on this. And I love this. He says in his commentary again on this passage, he says, it is wrong to ask anybody who is not first a Christian to try to live and practice the Sermon on the Mount. To expect Christian conduct from a person who is not born again is heresy. Okay? Again, because you can't possibly do this apart from being born again. You can't live out the Sermon on the Mount. So we need to kind of keep that in check. Um, The other thing I would say as as we're looking through this um, is that the Sermon on the Mount is is not a formula of do these things to inherit the kingdom of God. It's not, okay, I need this, and then I need this, and I need this, and then I get to achieve the kingdom of God. That is not what it's describing here. What it's saying is this is the way of which a Christian operates. This is how they think. This is what they would do. And so I need you to understand this. Uh, Maybe this is the first point, uh, point in the outline. The order is important. The order is important. Notice that the Sermon on the Mount starts with the Beatitudes, The Beatitudes are a list of this is what Christian conduct looks like. It's what Christian character, sorry, it's what Christian character looks like. I love that Jesus starts with the heart. He starts with character, not with the doing of things. All right, that is so important for us to understand. Uh, A mentor of mine uh, gave me this prayer to pray kind of weekly. He says, um, the prayer is, Lord, give me character that's greater than my gifts and give me humility that's greater than my influence. Notice that Jesus starts with the Beatitudes. He doesn't end with the Beatitudes. He's not like, here's all the things we need to do. Oh, by the way, make sure you're poor in spirit. Oh, by the way, make sure you mourn. He starts with the Beatitudes. 
And that then makes the Beatitudes, when we look at it, as kind of like the gate or the door to get into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, what, what Jesus is kind of saying is like, hey, this is a way of which a Christian operates, a way of a, um, the way in which someone who's following Jesus operates. I want to kind of throw this little nugget your way, because um, I think, again, this hits the point of our doing, uh, sorry, of um, uh, the order of being important, that our doing for Jesus, our doing for Christ is a result of our being in Christ. Our doing for Christ is first and foremost a result of our being in Christ. And so when we look through the Beatitudes, he's going to start hitting this. Um, and so when we look at the Beatitudes, a question that is, it almost becomes a diagnostic tool we need to look at. We need to start looking at the Beatitudes and ask ourselves, am I somebody who's poor in spirit? Am I somebody who mourns? Am I somebody who is weak? Am I somebody who is pure in heart? We look at these things, and if you find yourself in your heart going, uh, I just want to skip over that to get to the rest of it, you are doing a fatal, fatal flaw, a fatal error, which will lead into legalism and will lead into pride and everything which Jesus is trying to get you not to do. In fact, if in your heart you look at being poor in spirit, you look at mourning, you go, I desire zero, like none of that then stop reading the rest of it first off. But second, check your heart with where you are with the Lord. Because he will say later on in the Sermon on the Mount, when uh, he says, uh, people will come to the kingdom of heaven and go, well, Jesus, didn't we like prophesize in your name? Didn't we kill people? And he goes, I never knew you. So this idea is heart. He's going after this. Um, if we're not careful, we skip over the Beatitudes. We become the Pharisee and the... the um, the tax collector and the Pharisee, this parable that Jesus told, he says, the Pharisee stood up and said, God, I thank you that I'm not like these other men, the unjust, the adulterers, or even this tax collector. For I fast twice a day and I give tithes to all that I get. If we're not careful, we skip over the Beatitudes. We go into our doing. We become self-righteous pride. And let me tell you, nobody wants to hang out with that person. That is not an attraction that people are going, yeah, I would like to be that person. No, because we are putting our righteousness before men. And we're saying, look how good I am. But instead, if you read the Beatitudes and you go, I, I desire to be poor in spirit. I just, I'm not. Or I, I desire to mourn, but like my heart doesn't break at times. Or I want to be meek. I, I, I want these things, but, it, but it's not there. Then I would say for the desire, if the desire is there, that you are in a good place. Because you were like the demon-possessed boy's father who said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. That is a great place to be. And so as you read, you're going, oh, I desire this. Then keep on going as we read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, so the order is important for the whole Sermon on the Mount, but the order is important for the Beatitudes. I know I was convicted when I read the Sermon on the Mount. I read the Beatitudes. You go, all right, poor in spirit. Don't really get that. But uh, next one, mourn. Sounds intriguing, uh, meek, and you kind of quickly go through them and you get to the Sermon on the Mount. And, and, and we need to know that the order of the Beatitudes are actually important. So before we take a, uh, we look just at the meek today, we got to look at the whole of them to, under, to understand. And so we start off, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. I mean, blessed are the ones who have zero to offer to God, who go before the Lord and go, I, I have nothing. Um, 
he's the opposite of the Pharisee in the, in the parable of the tax collector. The tax collector goes and he says, he just beats his chest and he says, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's all he does. He has nothing to offer. All he has to offer is, please have mercy on me because I know if you don't, I'm not getting in. And he says, he's the one that gets in, not the Pharisee. So someone who is following Christ, someone who's been impacted, who's been transformed by the gospel, we are poor in spirit. I'm always fascinated by the way people do quote unquote quiet times or spend time with the Lord. I used to call it JC money time because in the early 2000s, you just put a dollar sign by anything, just made it cooler. And so um, but I was intrigued by how they did that. And um, there's this guy named Tim Brown. He was a president of this theological seminary and he would just memorize chunks of scripture. And by chunks, I mean, he read to us the entire book of Mark. And by read, I mean his memory. It was wild. I was like, no way. Um, and then I remember him saying, you know, when you read scripture, you own it. But when you memorize it, it owns you. He then told his friend, this guy named Cornelius Plantiga. He's got a brother who is a philosopher um, teacher at uh, Notre Dame. He is a theological professor. And uh, this is what he does um, to start his morning routine. He says he just hits his chest and says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, have mercy on me and a sinner. And he said he doesn't move from that place until he feels it in his heart and then he opens the scriptures. So someone who's a believer of Christ, we are poor in spirit. And that leads then to the next thing, which is when we're poor in spirit, we mourn. We mourn the fact that we have nothing to offer to God. We mourn the fact that the sin in our life is distancing, distancing ourselves from the Lord. Uh, G.K. Chesterton, uh, someone asked him, I think it was like Times or some newspaper asked all these people, uh, what do you think the problem with the world is? And G.K. Chesterton said uh, two letters or two words, I am. He realizes the problem is me first. He mourns himself. We mourn the fact that I have nothing to offer God, that I am a wreck before the Lord. I, 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 I mourn the fact that sin hurts the one being that I want to be with. It says in Isaiah 64, 6, that our most righteous deeds, like the best thing you've ever done is like filthy rags to God. And I mourn that that's all I have to offer. But the beauty of this is it says, those who mourn will be comforted. And why are we comforted? When you mourn, you realize that the Lord forgives. He forgives our transgressions. Why? Jesus and so there's joy in our mourning. We're not just in despair. We go, yeah, no, I am, I am no good. And I, and I hate the fact that I am no good. But man, is Christ good. Um, John Newton, he, a great pastor in the 1800s, he, he said um, when he was getting really old, and by old, I mean like 86, 87, he was old. Uh, that, if you're 86 or 87, it, it is what it is. Um, and uh, uh, he said... Uh, hey, why are you still preaching? Like, you're kind of like forgetting some stuff. And he says, well, there's two things I'll never forget. That one, I am a great sinner. And that two, I have a great savior. And so this mourning for sin, that's being poor in spirit, then leads us to our verse today, which we are now in it at 17 minutes. So here we go. Um, the transition. Blessed then are the meek. If you're poor in spirit, it leads to mourning for sin and being comforted. And it leads to having a characteristic of being meek. So we're going to read in Matthew 5, 5. I told you we'd get there. All right, Matthew 5, 5, and it says this. 
Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. I know that's words you use a lot um, right now, meek, to describe people. So we need to dive in and go, what, what does this word meek mean? Um, so who are the meek? Here's, a, here's what I think is important to know. Um, first, meekness does not mean weak, self-pitied, or timid. Uh, I, I think when we think meek, we can think weak. We can think very shy. We can think somebody who's like an introvert. or We think it's a characteristic that, or a, a disposition of people. And being meek is not a disposition. This is not something that you inherently have and some don't. This is one that can only be given to you through Jesus. And so uh, some ways of understanding when we understand meek. Uh, Aristotle defined, uh, so the Greek word for meek is praus. And the way Aristotle uh, defined that, and you might be going, why are you talking about Aristotle? I'll get there, chill. Um, he says, is a person, meekness, praus, is a person who's angry at the right occasion with the right people at the right moment for the right length of time. That's a different one. In William Barclay's uh, commentary, great commentary on Matthew, he, um, he reads Matthew 5, 5 this way. Blessed is the man who is always angry at the right time and never angry at the wrong time. You, you kind of see that in Jesus, don't you? You see a, a, a Jesus who is, who is meek, who is gentle. But then when he sees the money changers cheating people and hurting God's people, he, he turns cords into whips and, and he flips some tables over, Right? And so the question is like, well, when should you be angry? Uh, never, uh, selfish anger is never righteous anger. Uh, to be angry at something that is unjust is part of that. And so I think, I think it's fair to, to say, maybe that is what Jesus is talking about here. I think it's also fair to go to your Bibles and say, well, I bet Jesus probably used more biblical interpretations, maybe than Aristotle at times. That's probably true. So we're going to read uh, Psalm 37. Starting in verse 3. So if you have your Bibles, you just flip open to the middle and you'll somewhat be in the Psalms. Um, and so Psalm 37, starting in verse 3, and it says this. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land um, and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourselves in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord and trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as light and justice and noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger, forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, and for those who wait in the Lord will inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more, and though you look carefully, careful at his place, he will not be there. And here we go. Verse 11. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in the abundance of peace. So when we look at this passage. We see a meek person trusts in the Lord, delights in the Lord, commits their ways to the Lord and rest in the Lord. I love uh, another place we look at this picture of meekness um, is Moses. Moses in Numbers 12 says, uh, <laughs> I just love this. Now, the man Moses, talking about himself, was very meek, more than anyone on the face of the earth. 
In general, if someone says they are a very humble person, I do not trust them. But because this is Moses, it's in the Bible, I trust this. And so we need to look at Moses' life and what do we see? We see this humility. We see that Jesus, uh, Moses, when he goes to the burning bush, what does he do? He takes his shoes off because he believes he's in this holy place. And so you see this, this humbleness uh, when we look at Moses' life. I love uh, James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary talking about meekness. He says this, meekness of this sort of Moses takes off his shoes before the burning bush, yet will obey God by walking up to the mightiest ruler of the day and demanding, this is what the Lord and God of Israel says, let my people go. I love that. That meekness is the humility before the Lord, but the boldness before men because I'm obedient to the Lord. Uh, if you ever get a chance, you need to read the book, um, uh, The Hiding Place by Corey Ten Boom. If, uh, some people in here are like, yes, I've read that like 100 years ago. Um, it was awesome. It's the greatest book ever. You need to read it. Corey Ten Boom's life is so, so cool. Um, and yet so, so hard. But really her father, Casper uh, Ten Boom, I love. And so the Ten Boom family uh, during World War II, Casper uh, Ten Boom was a, a clocksmith. He, he worked on uh, people's watches and stuff. And what they would do, um, this was in the Netherlands, uh, they would hide uh, Jews in their apartment, sorry, in their house, away from when kind of the Nazis came and occupied uh, the Netherlands. They would hide them in their place, hence hiding place. And they built this like secret little door, this little nook that looks like a bookshelf. Um, and they would hide them in there whenever like the door would come knocking. Casper uh, Ten Boom, when you, when you read his life, is this the most like gentle, loving, compassionate human being you'll ever find? Um, and, and eventually uh, the Nazis raid their house and they get caught. Um, and this is what one of the um, Gestapos um, said to Casper uh, Ten Boom, who was in like 84, 85 years old at this time. Um, he says... Um, I like, uh, I'd like to end, uh, I'd like you to end your life at your home, old fellow. That word old. I'd like you to end your life at your home, old fellow. So if you promise me not to cause any trouble, I'll let you be. Here's his response. If I go home today, tomorrow I will open my door again to any man in the need who knocks. He said, you know you could die by helping the Jews. And he responded, it would be my and my family's greatest honor if we were to give our lives for such a cause. Meekness is obedient to the Lord, is humble to the Lord, and is bold before men. Okay, so then we dive into the idea of, okay, if this is what we look at, meekness, why don't we jump more New Testament? We look at Jesus' life, and I want to give us four attributes um, that I think describe the meek person. And the first one is this. A meek person is a forgiving person. A meek person is a forgiving person. Uh, in Psalm 32, 1, David says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed, the same word, right? Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. Okay, to be a meek person means that I then, because I have been forgiven such a debt, I'm able to forgive others. If you're not careful, you can read the Sermon on the Mount at times and go, see, Jesus says, uh, unless you forgive, you will not be forgiven. Like there's some like works base in this, and that's not what he's saying. He's saying a truly forgiving person 
forgives others. A little bit later, Peter, trying to act all you know, high and mighty, says, hey, Jesus, how many times should we forgive people? Like seven? Back then, that was like, whoa, that's a lot. Um, and Jesus is like, no, like 70 times seven. Peter was like, oh, no, um, that doesn't mean an actual number. It means unlimited. And then he tells the story of a servant who's in debt, so much money that it would take the rest of his life to pay it off. And then he begs his master, said, can, can you just forgive me this debt? What a ridiculous request at the time. Like, can you just forgive me of like everything? And the guy, that his, his master says, yeah, I will forgive you your debt. And then in the, in the parable Jesus teaches, that guy um, who's just been forgiving, this, I mean, millions and millions of dollars, right, debt, then goes to his, like a friend or a servant for him who owes him like $10 and goes, you wicked servant, get in jail, get in jail. Uh, and he sends him in jail because he couldn't pay the small little debt. And so what happens when the guy who's been forgiven such a big debt, his master hears about this, he grabs that guy and he throws him in jail and he takes the other guy out of jail. He says, you wicked servant, you've been forgiven so much. How could you not then go and forgive? A meek person is a forgiving person because we have been forgiven so much. When you mourn your sin and you realize that your best deeds, like that time that you helped that little person across the street or that time that you thought you did the greatest thing ever is a filthy rag to God, you realize that you have been forgiven so much, you forgive others. I'll kind of then want to look a little bit then more at Jesus' life as we kind of get to these other um, examples of what does it mean to be a meek person. You know, there's 80, roughly, I think it's 88 chapters in the Gospels. And there's only one place in all, all the scripture, all the Gospels, where Jesus gives you a picture into what his heart is like. Uh, one place where he says, let me just pull the curtains back. And I want you to know uh, how I would describe my own heart. He says it this way in Matthew 11, 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon and learn from me, for I am gentle, I am meek and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. A meek person is a gentle person. Uh, Dane Ortland, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, describes um, Jesus this way. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. A meek person is a gentle person. The last two attributes I want us to turn uh, in your Bibles, if you go to Philippians chapter 2, 4 through 11. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 4, it says, Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is in you in Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the very form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself. I want to pause there, that he humbled himself. He was God, that he didn't use his godness to his advantage. He humbled himself. He became a servant. A meek person is not a proud person. It's not a haughty person. It's not a self-pitied person. Um, it's not someone who can't take praise. 
You know, the self-pity where you're like, oh, no, it wasn't that good. You're like, no, it was good. You don't need to have false humility. That was okay. It's not self-pitied person. C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity talks about humility this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Oh, sorry, um, humility is not thinking less of yourself, self-deprecation, right? But thinking of yourself less. A truly meek person walks into a room and they don't do this. Here I am. Look at me. How's everybody doing? Or if they're self-deprecating, like, oh, I'm the worst. Look at me. I'm so bad. Uh, a truly humble person's this. You don't even know they're in the room because they're the one asking you the questions. They're the one drawing attention to you, not themselves. And we can do that only through Jesus. And we'll get to that point. But a meek person is a humble person. All right, the, the rest of that verse, uh, starting in verse 8, says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has exalted him and, boasted, um, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Amen. A meek person is an obedient person. How many times do you look through Jesus and he says, I only do what my father tells me to do. When Jesus is right before the cross, not my will, but your will be done. A meek person is an obedient person. And here's what's really, I think, oh, it was hard for me. Um, Jesus, I think we can all agree, is our savior, right? We go, hey, he's my savior. It gets really hard when he becomes your Lord. This part of being obedient is this tough, it's a little bit harder part because now I have to go and say, I actually have to go obey what he tells me to go do. So maybe Jesus is your savior today, but I want to ask you, is he your Lord? Is he the one directing you or is he kind of sitting in co-pilot? Is he driving your car or is he in the back telling you where to go? Obedience is part of being meek. And so hopefully maybe I got you to this point of going, all right, I can't do any of this. That's really hard. How can I possibly be humble? How can I possibly be always obedient? How can I be this compassionate? How can I be forgiving when that person cut me off? Like, how can I do these things? Because it's not natural in me. And I go, exactly. It's not natural. This is not a disposition. He's not saying, oh, there's some people who are meek. No, no, you cannot be meek apart from Jesus. And so the question then becomes, how does one become meek? We look to the cross. We look to the cross. And here's where I really want to get practical when I say we look to the cross. When you look to the cross, it does this. It humbles you out of your pride. You cannot possibly look to the, look to the cross and go, I'm pretty good. Dude, you're so bad that Jesus had to come down here and fix it. Right? Like when the manager has to come down and fix something, but then the owner comes down, you did something wrong. All right. In this case, we're going, we've broken the system so bad that God had to come down here and fix us. Now, if we just stayed there, we would feel very sad. Like, woe is me. We'd feel really despair. But the cross does this. Um, it loves us out of our despair. It humbles us out of our pride, but it loves us out of our despair. It's not that Christ so hated the world that he gave his one and only son. It's that he loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So only the cross can do this. It can humble you out of your pride and love you out of your despair. It's the only thing that can make you a meek person. 
If not, you're going to become a really proud person and say, look all the great things I did. Or you're going to be a very self-deprecating person and go, I'm the worst. Uh, stop it. The God of the universe loved you so much that he died for you. Stop thinking your value is nothing. We've talked about this before. What determines the value of something? What someone's willing to pay? The God of the universe said, you know what you're worth? My son. Hence, you are priceless. Know that as a follower of Christ. The third thing, though, so it, it humbles us out of our pride. It, it, it loves us out of our despair. And then the last part is it enables us to live the Christian life. It's only Jesus' death and resurrection that we can possibly actually live this life. It says in uh, Titus 2, verse 13, Jesus, who gave himself to us um, to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. This idea that because of Jesus' death, we are called to go do good works. We just don't use good works to justify our falling of Jesus. It's just the natural overflow of someone who has been forgiven a great debt. You go and you love people well. You are your brother's keeper. That's what happens. And now we're going to land this plane a little bit. And this idea, this promise, which is, and you will inherit the kingdom of God. What does that mean? You know, you're like, I, I, I get, or sorry, you will inherit, sorry, you will not inherit the kingdom of God, um, but you will inherit the earth. And she's like, okay, so what does that mean to inherit the earth? I said earlier that we are after always our joy and we're going to worldly things. If I just had the right relationship, the right job, if I just made the right amount of money, if I just had the most social media views on my Instagram or Twitter or, you know, whatever people use. Um, if I had this, then I would be a somebody and God's going, you cannot look to the world to fulfill something it was never created to do. The earth was created for us to enjoy it. It was not created for us to find joy in it. It's not, it is not meant to satisfy our deep longing desires. John Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. We are constantly looking to find another idol, another thing in my heart that I want to put worth into. And if you're going, what is an idol? Like, explain that. Uh, and counterfeit gods, I love this example Tim Keller gives us. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart, your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give. Anything um, that is so central and essential to your life that if you should lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. A meek person is satisfied in the Lord and the Lord only. We can say with Paul in 2 Corinthians, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor as though being, um, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing, and here we go, yet possessing everything. Because we have been given the greatest gift of all time, the Lord Jesus Christ, we now therefore can enjoy the world without making it our God. I can enjoy my kids without needing them to justify me as a parent. I can enjoy my job without making my job the whole reason why I'm alive. I can enjoy being married. Or I can enjoy my, 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 my relationship without asking that person to be my God and to fulfill every desire. We inherit the earth because we've been given it now. You now know the secret of joy is this contentment found only at the cross, only in Jesus. Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, he said, if you aim 
for heaven, you get earth thrown in. But if you aim for earth, you lose both. Meek people are people who aim for heaven, that we are satisfied with the gospel. And so as I close, I want to leave you with this question. Um, Do you desire these things? Do you desire to be poor in spirit? Do you desire to mourn? Do Do you see that Jesus is offering you a different life? He's offering you a greater life where joy cannot be taken away. Have you found that you are trying to inherit the earth by making idols of things? And if so, which if you're going, I don't think I do. Here's the thing about idols. You don't really know they're an idol until you lose it. So it's always good to ask yourself the question, am I making this thing bigger than it should? Confession, I do it daily. I'm constantly having to go to the Lord and go, I I think I made this bigger than it should have been. I think I went to this for happiness and joy, and I knew that it couldn't do it. Forgive me. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Do we invite, do we want the meek life? Because it leads to the fulfilled life. We can be content in all things because of Christ who strengthens us. That's a verse that doesn't mean you can lift a lot of weights. It's a verse that means I can be satisfied in all things. And that is what Jesus is offering us today. Let's pray. Father God, uh, I pray that you are with us today. I I pray that uh, what is from me and didn't make sense and no one remembered, but what is from you was etched onto our hearts. Lord, come and be with us. Help us to live a life of meekness. Help us to be humbled out of our pride, but loved out of our despair. Lord, give us a new heart because we can't live this life without you. We can't possibly be good enough. Nothing but the blood of Jesus is the one that cleanses us, that enables us to live the Sermon on the Mount. And in doing so, invites a hurting world to come in and experience that those who are heavy, burdened, that Jesus' invitation to come and rest in him. Lord, that we would get to offer that invitation to others as people are hurting in this world. We love you. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.